Our speaker this evening is Gareth Williams, an expert in English fine and vernacular furniture and in British paintings, and a well-regarded authority on the English country house, its architecture and decoration. Trained in the history of art at the University of Manchester, where he received undergraduate and graduate degrees, and educated further during a period of work at Sotheby's, Mr. Williams has had an award-winning curatorial career. He has served as an expert advisor to Blenheim Palace, Lyme Park, Dunham Massey, and Nostal Priory, and he is currently curator at the Weston Park Foundation, which conserves the 17th century country house, Weston Park, and its notable landscaped grounds in Staffordshire, England. His subject this evening seems perfectly suited to a library that welcomes well-behaved dogs. It is House and Hound, Dogs in the English Country House. Please join me in welcoming Gareth Williams. Well, thank you very much indeed for that very kind introduction, and it's a real joy to be with you here this evening, especially, as, as we've just heard, that there is a very good dog-friendly policy here at the, the Athenaeum. Although I have to say that, casting my eye around, I'm rather glad to see my own Jack Russell and Whippet aren't amongst the audience. I think I'd rather get the fifth degree for having abandoned them and coming over to the States to, uh, to lecture for you this evening. When we think about the English country house, we tend to think about a very formal environment. A grand, perhaps porticoed pile set within a landscape park with elegant lodge gates at the entrance to the, the drive. Very formal environment, which is immediately broken in its formality by the informality of dogs which rush forward to greet us if we're visiting a private country house. They happen to be behind the doors when the owner opens the doors, and they immediately put everyone at their ease. It's something which, unsurprisingly, uh, when Sir Simon Jenkins entered his tenure as the chairman of the National Trust, one of his hopes in terms of humanising houses which had perhaps not been occupied by families for some considerable time was that perhaps dogs should be brought into the houses. So it's quite a telling factor that they are such an essential part of the English country house. And what I'd like to share with you this evening are, in many ways, the cultural significance that dogs have had in English country houses, not just in the 20th, 21st centuries, but looking back through time over a considerable period of time, not only seeing dogs as companions, but also as useful creatures for hunting, for guarding of properties as well, and to see them in various different aspects within a house. So we're going to follow a rough chronological order as we progress this evening looking at some of the dogs in English houses. We begin, though, with a most interesting piece of stone carving. This is 2nd century AD, and it's actually a stone carving in Ulithic limestone, which comes from the National Trust property of Chedworth Roman Villa in Gloucestershire. It's a particularly interesting piece, um, showing a huntsman with a stag to the one side, holding in his hand a hare, and below him a dog, which even in this rather um, worn state, an eroded state that you can see the stone, the, hare, the dog is paying particular attention to the hare that's in the huntsman's hand. 
Not all ancient stone sculptures which have a dog on them, which are associated with an English country house, though, have an indigenous origin to the site which they can be found at. This particular sculpture that I'm showing you here, which is actually about two feet in height, is now to be found in the British Museum. But for many years, it was associated with Charles Townley, a Lancashire recusant landowner who lived at, at Townley Hall in Lancashire, and who also put together a celebrated collection of classical sculptures from his grand tours, including this sculpture, which in his time was thought to be two greyhound dogs. It's now generally assumed that the, uh, the bitch and the dog which are uh, engaged in, in a bit of um, ear-licking um, activity that you can see here are in fact Saluki um, breed of dogs. And you see not only the sculpture, but also a drawing done in the early 19th century when this, this um, sculpture was at its height of, of excitement so far as, as um, art connoisseurs were concerned. Charles Townley, who is painted by um, Zoffany in his Park Street gallery, his, his London townhouse, surrounded by his classical sculptures. Interestingly, again, we see a dog in this picture, um, not, in fact, the, the sculpture of the dogs that we've seen in the previous slide, but we also, to the side of the picture by Zoffany, see his country house of, of Townley Hall um, near Burnley in Lancashire. Those of you that attended the Treasure Houses of Britain exhibition in the 1980s might remember seeing this particular sculpture, which is often known as the Dog of Alcibiades, or the Jennings Dog. It's a 2nd century AD sculpture, which is thought to be a copy of a Roman, um, uh, sorry, a Hellenistic bronze um, lost original sculpture. It was a, a sculpture which for a long period of time was associated with a great Yorkshire country house and in fact it was from this house that it was loaned when it came to the treasure houses of Britain. It was then owned by Lord Duncombe whose ancestor Thomas Duncombe had built Duncombe Park, the family's ancestral home, near Helmsley in Yorkshire in 1713. It's a house which served, in fact, in the early years of the 20th century, when the family were hit by death duties, as a girls' school. And during the time that the house was used as a girls' school, the sculpture remained in the entrance hall. It's said that it was rather unwillingly fed with unwanted sandwiches made of marmite, which some of you will perhaps know as being a yeast extract paste. So uh, whether, when we go back to look at that picture, if you can see some dark staining in the mouth, you might know that that's where that's come from. Henry Constantine Jennings, who you see on the left-hand side of this image here, was a rather eccentric collector, and it was he who in the 1750s purchased the sculpture, uh, sculpture from a dealer in Rome at that time. He only owned it for about 20 years because he was rather fond of horse racing, and as a consequence of his gambling endeavours, he was forced to sell the sculpture, which was bought by Charles Duncombe, who you see on the right-hand side, and who took it to his family home in Yorkshire from whence, in 2001, it left that house and went to the British Museum. During its time in Duncan Park, though, although it was tucked away in a Yorkshire country house, the sculpture was sufficiently well known to have spawned a number of miniature versions of, uh, of similar dogs of Alcibiades. Perhaps the most um, clumsy of them is the Staffordshire version, which you see here from the late 18th century on the, um, the upper left side of the screen. The central version is also a Staffordshire pottery version, in this case trying to emulate porphyry, that great hardstone, purple hardstone. And also, Grand Tour-type souvenirs were also produced of the dog, made in serpentine, which you can see on the right-hand side of the screen. 
Dogs also found their way into contemporary sculptures which were being produced in the late 18th and early 19th century. This particular sculpture was commissioned by the third Earl of Egremont at Petworth, a National Trust property in Sussex. It's a work of the sculptor John Carew. It was in fact the earliest sculpture that was purchased by Lord Egremont and it can be seen in the North Gallery of that house showing Arethusa who was one of the nymphs um, associated with the goddess of hunting, Diana, with a hand. And you see in the detail the rather wonderful um, depiction of that dog, the very alert, drilled eyes, the ears slightly cocked, waiting to hear for something. And um, Arethusa herself um, bent down to, to listen to see if she can hear at something. She might, though, as we know from Ovid's Metamorphoses, been looking out for the river god, who took rather a shine to her, which caused Diana to turn her into a stream that, so that she was able to escape his attentions. If we think on about hunting, and particularly hunting dogs in the Middle Ages, um, we might consider looking at some tapestries which are now to be found in the Victorian Albert Museum in London. These are known as the Devonshire hunting tapestries. They were owned by the Dukes of Devonshire, the owners of Chatsworth, and of course Hardwick Hall, which went to the National Trust at a time when the late Duke of Devonshire was settling death duties in the 1950s. In 1957, the V&A got these rather wonderful tapestries, which date from between 1430 and 1450, and were probably made at Arras. This one, which is one of four, shows deer hunting. And if we look at a detail of it, you can see some of the hands within the, uh, the tapestry. Um, very alert-looking hands, straining on their leashes as they, they struggle to try to, to get to the deer, which these other two hands have already reached, proving their purpose within the household. Hunting depictions of dogs are something which remain very much of interest in the English country house. This picture by Jean-Baptiste Oudry is a mid-18th century picture which is to be found at the Vine in Hampshire, National Trust property there. It's actually in one of the withdrawing rooms of the house. But pictures of this type which show a pointer disturbing a pheasant, and a very wary looking pheasant it is, hiding the other side of that rather scanty little bit of, of um, greenery which is protecting it from the dog. Pictures of this sort were very popular in the dining rooms of country houses, forming a bond between those around the dining table talking about hunting with um, the actual practice of hunting and some of those dogs which were associated with it. Many of the great hunting pictures from the early 20th century um, that we find in English country house collections are associated with Lionel Edwards. And this is a, a Lionel Edwards picture from the early 20th century showing the beaver hands in Leicestershire. Uh, part of the Duke of Rutland's hunt, which is based there. Some very alert pictures of hands who are particularly interested in Lionel Edwards as he painted them. He was somebody that really knew hunting and really knew hands because he'd hunted with just about every hunt in Britain as well. So it's a particularly good picture for him to show. He shows in the background as well the kennels of the beaver hunt at Beaver Castle, which were probably a collaboration between the architect James Wyatt and the fifth Duke of Rutland's wife, who paid a particular interest to the architectural creations on that estate. Dogs, though, have enabled architects to have tremendous fantasies with buildings which have been created with the permission of the owners and, of course, the patrons who were prepared to pay for these buildings. 
The view that this wonderful set of buildings at Chatelero um, in Scotland, not far from Glasgow, enjoy is not perhaps that which they would have enjoyed in the 1730s when this was first built by William Adam for the then Duke of Hamilton. You can see if you look closely into the distance here, there's actually tower blocks on the horizon. But this great pavilion of classical form was built as both accommodation for hunt servants, for kennelmen, it had kennels within it, and it also, at the end of the, uh, the right-hand end of the image, had accommodation for the Duke and Duchess of Hamilton, banqueting rooms for them to enjoy the park as they looked back down an avenue to Hamilton Palace, their great, now-demolished house um, on the outskirts of Glasgow. At Western Park, the house on the Shropshire-Staffordshire border, where I'm the curator and head of learning, we have some unexecuted designs, which are almost certainly by the architect James Payne, who worked extensively for Sir Henry Bridgman, the then owner of the estate. He designed a rather wonderful building called the Temple of Diana, which at the moment the foundation is currently converting to a rather intriguing um, holiday residence, which will be available for people. This particular building, though, was possibly intended to be within the capability grounds, capability brand grounds, close to what's still known as Dog Kennel Pool. And it shows this great elliptical courtyard, which was erected for the exercising of hounds. There are whelping rooms within the central pavilion there, and accommodation for the kennelmen um, to the sides of the building. A rather wonderful Palladian conceit, and sadly, one which was not built. Also unexecuted, and probably intended for the downhill estate in Northern Ireland, which is today owned by the National Trust, are these designs by a very young John Soane, which he produced at the age of about 25 in the 1770s for the Earl Bishop of Derry's son. They show a canine residence, the one on the right, which, uh, sorry, on the left, which is framed with a gilt frame, says an elevation and plan of a doghouse. Um, this rather wonderful triangular construction, and you see it again on the right-hand side of the screen as well in another drawing that he produced. One of these drawings was in fact um, exhibited at the Royal Academy, so it was taken very seriously, these particular designs that Soane had produced. Hunting dogs also, of course, find their way into decoration. The love of the chase was such that many patrons, when they were commissioning alterations to their houses, incorporated dogs within the structure of their building. The slides I'm showing you here are of the great staircase at Dunster Castle, a house in Somerset which is now owned by the National Trust, but which was previously the home of the Luttrell family, altered in the 1680s for Sir Colonel Francis Luttrell. And you see here this great staircase attributed to Edward Pierce the Younger, a craftsman who also produced the rather wonderful staircase which can still be seen today in the Metropolitan Museum of Art, which was originally created for Cassiobury. Here you see hunting hounds climbing their way up the balustrade of the staircase as the, the staircase rises up three walls of the, the staircase well in that house. Sometimes, though, of course, the depiction of greyhounds or hunting dogs was put onto floors or onto ceilings or onto walls for heraldic reasons, because it was the badge or the crest of the family that was commissioning the alterations to a house. We see here the Tyconnell Room at Belton House in Lincolnshire, a house now owned by the National Trust to whom it was given by the Lord Brownlow in the 1980s. 
The Brownlow family's ancestor was created Viscount Tarconnell, and this room celebrates that achievement within the Irish peerage. The floor of the room rather unusually painted with the Tarconnell greyhound. Um, and you can also see within the archives at Belton, they have um, the design for that floor, which probably dates from the early 19th century. Greyhounds are also to be found on the gate piers at Clumber Park in Nottinghamshire, a great estate where, sadly, the house was demolished in the early 20th century. The estate today, though, is open to the public thanks to its ownership by the National Trust. These greyhounds, which are finials on a pair of late 18th century, rather Adam-esque-looking gate piers, which bear the ducal coronet of the Dukes of Newcastle, who once owned the estate, and the garter badge, they were probably part of the, um, the heraldic achievements of the house, hence their appearance on that now disused southern gateway to the park. Some houses incorporate dogs, and particularly hunting dogs, in a very unusual way. This spectacular interior, which I'm showing you here, is a neighbouring estate to Western Park. This is Morley Hall in South Shropshire, a house built in the 1730s for Sir Edward Blunt, now owned by Mr and Mrs Rupert Gallius Pratt, whose um, father rescued the house from near demolition in the 1950s. It has this spectacular staircase where the handrail emulates a serpent rising up around the walls of the well. The columns which support the um, upper balustrade of the staircase, which you can see in detail on the left-hand side of the screen, have a very unusual classical order. It's a complete um, composition which has been made up probably jointly by the architect, Francis Smith of Warwick, and his client, Edward Blunt, celebrating the fact that Sir Edward was very interested in hunting. And if you look closely at that slide, you can see dogs' heads peeping out at the top of the capitals. Not only do you have dogs' heads, but you also have a stag's head below, and the antlers of the stag forming a part of those very unusual capitals. Morley, the house I'm showing the exterior of here, still has dogs very much at its heart. And the little um, terrier that you can see there, called Lenny, is one of the great friendly welcomers at Morley for any visitors who go to that house. Lenny and his, his doggy chums are particularly lucky, in so much that in the dining room of the house that you see on the left-hand side of the slide has some very elegant Colfax and Fowler old rose-covered dog beds where dogs are kept at their maximum comfort. Dogs for companionship in country houses are something that have been celebrated down the ages. Wallington, up in Northumberland, again another property of the National Trust given to them by the Trevelyan family, either the Trevelyans or their ancestors, the Blackets, would have commissioned the sporting artist John Wooten to paint this rather charming picture of several of the dogs of the household in the middle years of the 18th century. Wharton's one of the great sporting artists of the generation prior to George Stubbs. And it's rather interesting to see this group of dogs, which we would today describe as Bichon Frise, which have their names um, actually painted onto the canvas in front of them, clearly pet dogs of the household, which occupies quite a, a sizable position on the walls of the staircase in that house. Now, this particular dog is rather interesting because if you go to the house where this dog hangs, which is Dunham Massey in Cheshire, again another National Trust property, which was given to the Trust by the, the last Earl of Stamford in the 19, uh, 1970s, this is a very interesting picture from, from a dual perspective, in so much that when Jan Wick painted the picture, he was not only depicting the house prior to its 18th century rebuilding, but he was also depicting George Booth, the second Earl of Warrington's dog, possibly no 
known as Old Virtue, um, said to be a Dutch Mastiff. The rather interesting thing is that George Booth, in spite of 38 years of unhappy marriage, never once had his wife painted. He had his dog painted. The Booth family took their dogs very, very seriously. And in fact, one of George Booth's relatives, Catherine Booth, um, wrote quite an extensive little chapter in her will for provisions for her dogs. And I quote, she wrote, I cannot satisfy myself without taking care of my sensible, loving Dutch, Dutch Mastiff Poppet if I die before her. So I write this to charge my estate, real and personal, with 12 pence a week to maintain her in meat as long as she lives. That is, the person who takes care of her is to have it for that purpose and to have the little table with a drawer to put her meat or combs or trencher in, what I call hers, and she shall have her mug for water and a bottle always full in the room she lies in, and she'll lie on the bed or go into it if she pleases. And the first thing carried out to some safe place in a morning to, or to do her occasions, then at breakfast a little bread crumbled on her trencher or plate, a cup of tea or coffee cup of milk, to put uh, and stirred together any butcher's meat cut on her trencher at noon and a bone to please her at all times and to be carried out again after dinner. So very prescriptive instructions for the dog. The unfortunate thing, though, is that the dog predeceased her, as so often happens. So she made a further codicil to her will. Since Poppet is dead, all is at an end with what I have writ above and in this paper, but my concern is now for Pretty Prince and Bender, Dumb, sensible, sincere creatures. At Dunham, though, even after dogs had finally shuffled off their mortal coil, they were remembered with a dog graveyard, which is actually positioned in front of the north side of the house. And you can see some of the dog graves in this particular picture. Dogs were taken equally seriously when they had left this earth at Eastern Neston, which I show you here in the slides before you. Eastern Neston, one of the great Baroque masterpieces of English country houses in Northamptonshire, designed by Nicholas Hawksmoor, very serious piece of English country house building. Within its grounds has this rather elegant 1641 pavilion, which at one stage was ascribed to Inigo Jones. Within the pavilion, until recently when the Hesketh family sold the house, was this trestle table with a stone upon it. No ordinary trestle table by any way, shape or form, possibly sculpted by Daniel Foisson um, for the Earl of Arundel for one of his marbles, um, a table support which found its way in the 18th century within that garden pavilion when it had upon it this rude, crude stone which was inscribed to the memory of Pug, 1754. So Pug was given some fairly five-star treatment in terms of the afterlife where Easton Neston and the firmer Hesketh family were concerned. Similarly, some of the great English landscape gardens that we think about, in particular William Kent's masterful treatment of the gardens of Rousham in Oxfordshire, laid out for General Dormer, the Venus Vale, as it is called, within the grounds of the house, might equally, in fact, be known as Ringwood's Vale, because the keystone carved below the figure of Venus within that rather wonderful Arcadian landscape is inscribed as being, um, um, to the memory of Ringwood, an otterhound of extraordinary sagacity. So General Dormer not only had a great keen interest in Arcadian beauty and in Italianate gardens, but also he firmly stamped his mark as an English squire and a dog lover upon the gardens of Rousham.
No less a person than Lord Byron, the great poet, also had similar feelings when his Newfoundland dog died, Boson. Boson died in 1808, and he wrote regretful verses to friends, letters to friends, and at his ancestral home in Nottinghamshire, Newstead Abbey, where he spent very little money on the building, he erected this rather grand neoclassical monument on, as he thought it, the site of the former high altar of the abbey, and um, penned a number of lines to the memory of his dog, um, which... Lady Byron, his estranged wife, took some degree of exception to, and she said that whilst he was all very fond of animals, it was quite simply because animals were dumb and they couldn't um, exclaim at their master's great wickedness. So she didn't take it quite so seriously as Byron himself. But Byron had Boson painted. Um, Clifton Thompson painted him in 1808, as you see in this picture that I show you here, which is in Nottingham City Art Gallery. And even when um, Belt came to sculpt Byron, and the sculpture which is to be found in Hyde Park in London, shows the poet his head resting on his hand and of below him his beloved dog, Boson. For an emerging consumer society, the English country house also shows a number of extraordinary representations of dogs and the English great love of dogs within collections. Here I show you Saltram House in Devon, a National Trust property owned by the Borringdon family, the Parker family. And within that collection are a pair of rather fine pug dogs, which are Chinese of about 1750 um, or so in date. Very interesting pug dogs because they also relate to a set of dogs known as the Mopshuns, another name for, um, for pugs, which were produced by Kendler at Meissen. And these rather handsome um, ceramic versions of dogs are to be found within the collection of that house. Pugs were also particularly um, a type of dog which were uh, attracted interest of the royal family. And this box, which I show you here, of amethystine, um, it's a snuff box, fairly sizable piece. On the top of it, you can see um, the, um, the, the diamond-encrusted pug dog uh, recumbent upon the top. It dates from about 1750. It's a European piece, but it was something which entered the royal collection of George IV in the 1820s when he purchased this from Rundle, Bridge and Rundle, the royal silversmiths. Even with pieces of furniture, there's no getting away from the English love of dogs. And at Nostal Priory in Yorkshire, now owned by the National Trust, to whom the Lord St. Oswald gave the a collection of Chippendale's finest documented collection of furniture within its indigenous setting, if we look very closely at some of the pieces, including this spectacular green lacquered clothes press, we find little depictions of dogs showing the humour of both the patron and of the person that made the piece. This particular piece, if you look very closely below the handle on the left-hand drawer, I'll show you this detail, you can see a little dog with a Chinaman to the side. It's almost a dog of foe that's been brought to life, but a rather engaging depiction of a dog, which must have been either the dictate of the patron, Sir Roland Wynne, the fifth baronet, or that of Thomas Chippendale and his workshop that made the piece. Dogs also appear in paintings frequently throughout the 18th century. We'd love to know more about this setter painted by Thomas Gainsborough, which is in the collection at Petworth, the house that had the Arethusa sculpture that I've already shown you. This was a picture that was brought to the house in the 1860s from the Egremont's London house. We know very little about it, who the dog was, but it clearly seems to be a portrait. There's a really um, very sensitive depiction of that dog within a landscape. 
Happily, we know more about these um, two groups of dogs that we see here, painted by that great master of animal painting, George Stubbs. These were royal commissions, commissioned by the Prince of Wales, later George IV. Um, on the left-hand side, you see the rough dog, as it's described, of about 1790. And on the other side, you see the Spitz dog, Fino, um, together with a rather playful spaniel known as Tiny, which dates from 1791. Really wonderful, very lifelike depictions of those favourite dogs of George IV. Dogs also form interesting, incidental creatures within um, formal family portraits. The formality of these two enormous great portraits at Blenheim Palace. On the left, you see Reynolds's 1770s picture of the fourth Duke and Duchess of their family. On the right-hand side, the ninth Duke and his Duchess, Consuela Vanderbilt, with their dogs painted by Sargent in 1905. Reynolds is clearly more at ease with those dogs, and those dogs break the formality that might otherwise be given by that very grand, dramatic architectural setting. You see the little girl with the theatrical mask playing with the whippet, which is looking very, very unsettled at the, the, the mask before it. And we've got a pair of King Charles Spaniels, or Blenheim Spaniels, a type of dog that were known to have been brought to Blenheim for hunting by the first Duke of Marlborough. Um, again, also rather spooked by the mast, mast which is before them. When Sargent painted his great view picture, it was very much at the say-so of the Duke that he was painting on the vast architectural scale that he was asked to paint. And Sargent is reputed to have muttered, well, what am I supposed to do with all the space? Oh, I'll have to put some Blenheim Spaniels in it, I suppose. And the Spaniels that he depicts are perhaps a little bit more grudging than the willing little fellows of Reynolds's picture. Dogs also find their way in the 18th century into sculptured form as well. And one particular, particular sculptress is of especial interest in the 18th century. Anne Seema Damer, uh, Mrs. Damer as she's known to posterity, well known for the group of dogs in marble which are to be found in one of the drawing rooms at Goodwood, the Earl of March's or the Duke of Richmond and Gordon's ancestral home in Sussex. Anne Seema was a cousin of Horace Walpole of Strawberry Hill. She, in fact, inherited that house for a very brief period of time before finding it too much and giving it over to the Countess Walgrave. But she was also a very talented sculptor. Horace Walpole got a little bit carried away with her abilities and likened her to Bernini and to some of the great classical sculptures. In fact, the dog of Alcibiades was said to be something of a, um, a, a contender for rivalry with some of Mrs. Damer's productions. Her works are uh, now very much sought after. The dog which I show you at the top left was in fact sold by Christie's in the early part of the 2000s, and that made um, $200,000, so enormously expensive items to, to try to collect today. Dog breeds and their forms in the 19th century became something which were of increasing interest with a society which was becoming more and more preoccupied with cataloguing all of natural history and all um, of, uh, of plant and animal types around it. The Mastiff dog was something which in the 19th century came to be something of a stabilised breed, but various historic houses have associations with the Mastiff dog. 
A painting in the collection at Western Park by Sir Anthony Van Dyke shows Thomas Killigrew with this great mastiff dog um, below his hand. But the house that really has the association with the mastiff breed is Lyme Park in Cheshire. And this great painting from the early years of the 20th century by Nettleship shows one of these vast great dogs which were bred at Lyme Park from the Middle Ages onward. It's said that Piers Lee II, after the Battle of Agincourt, was protected by a Mastiff when he was wounded in battle, and that the whole line of Lyme Mastiffs, which survived until the early years of the 20th century, stemmed from the dog that he brought back from Agincourt with him. The second Lord Lee, um, whose wife, Lady Lee, and his daughter Hilda are depicted with one of the Lyme Mastiffs here, made the unhappy decision at a time when estate revenues were at an all-time low, when people in the surrounding towns, towns were having trouble feeding themselves, to in fact have the race of um, Mastiffs at Lyme put down. So that, that line of dogs, which had existed there for so long, is no longer to be commemorated at the house except by paintings and by the the sad empty kennels which still survive to this day. Cataloguing of dog breeds um, was something which authors throughout the 19th century started to interest themselves in. This is a book of about 1800, of 1800 by Sydenham Edwards. It's a Kynographia Britannica, and it's in the library of Anglesey Abbey, the National Trust-owned property in the east of England. And it, it seeks to, to catalogue the various breeds of dogs at a time which was, in fact, 73 years before the founding of the Kennel Club of Great Britain in 1873, which sought to stabilise breeds of dogs. In the Victorian times, dogs remained as popular as ever. At Item Moat in Kent, the National Trust property there, surrounded by its rather beautiful moat, there is in the courtyard a rather charming Victorian half-timbered dog kennel to be found. Dogs were idolised by painters at that time, and this picture, laying down the law, is to be found in the collection of the Dukes of Devonshire at Chatsworth. It's a work by Sir Edwin Landseer, perhaps the greatest dog painter that the 19th century produced. This is a self-portrait that he produced, which was given by him to the very young Edward VII. Um, it's said to depict um, his collie dog Lassie and also a retriever, Myrtle, and showing in that picture that dogs also had the ability to recognise likeness in art as well. So putting the dog on a parallel with the human. For no other client that he had, perhaps this is better uh, exemplified than, in fact, the royal household. Queen Victoria and Prince Albert were great fans of Landseer's abilities. And this picture, which took over five years for Landseer to produce, Windsor in the modern time, um, which is a picture that Queen Victoria described rather offhandedly as the game piece, which took a long time to paint, shows Prince Albert with a number of their dogs um, and game that he supposedly brought back into the castle, with a rather wonderful view of the gardens at Windsor Castle in the background. It's in fact a picture which, if you go to the Queen's Gallery at Buckingham Palace until October, there's a rather wonderful exhibition um, about royal connections with gardens, which this picture is a key image in. We're, of course, looking at it from the doggy perspective and considering the range of dogs which we've got in this picture, um, Kenuch uh, and other dogs which belong to Queen Victoria, and in particular, Eos, the black greyhound that accompanied Prince Albert when he came over to England to marry um, Princess Victoria, as she then was. 
Eos was a dog that was idolised by Albert, and this picture was painted by Landseer as a Christmas present in 1841 by uh, Queen Victoria to give to Albert. And it shows the very loyal Eos looking up, evidently at his master, who's not present. His master shown, though, by the presence of his top hat and his gloves, and also by his dog cane of more anon. Wonderful, beautiful depiction of the dog. It was a dog which appears repeatedly in royal pictures. And this is Landseer's painting showing Eos and its very gentle nature with the young Princess Victoria, or the Princess Royal as she later became, together with a dove which supposedly represents childlike innocence. Landseer really understood dogs in a similar way that George Stubbs understood the horse. This is a drawing in the collection of the V&A that Landseer did, showing the anatomy of a greyhound, understanding the bone structure, the musculature of the dog um, as it was depicted. So it's quite understandable that when he came to paint some of those wonderful, sleek greyhounds, that he would really understand what was going on under the surface of the dog. This little dog has a very different story to tell. Again, a picture in the Royal Collection. In fact, quite an early photograph as well I'm showing you here on the right-hand side by Edward Bambridge, together with Wilhelm Cates painting in watercolour, showing a dog known as Lutie. Lutie is a very important dog because it was the earliest Pekingese dog in England. Brought to England in 1860 by Captain Dunn, looted from the Summer Palace and brought as a gift to Queen Victoria to join the royal dogs. And a dog which set a trend which carried on into the 20th century for the aristocracy to be interested in Pekingese dogs and to have them um, as a lap dog effectively. Queen Victoria's other um, interests in her life um, after Albert's death, John Brown was also, of course, a keen dog lover. This photograph shows him with a collection of the royal dogs um, at Balmoral, um, a rather interesting early photograph with a group of different animals which belonged to his royal mistress. In terms of the decorative arts, though, the royal patronage was very, very important. And this particular piece demonstrates a collaboration between Prince Albert and Garrard's. It was first publicly exhibited in 1849. It's a superb silver gilt centerpiece, which shows a collection of the royal dogs. You can see um, a rather inquisitive terrier looking into a little cage with a dachshund behind looking down into it. On the left-hand side, you see Eos once again, that rather noble greyhound bitch that belonged to Prince Albert, with a hare at its feet, showing its prowess not only as a companion dog, but as a sporting dog for coursing. And Prince Albert's cane, which we saw in that picture by um, Alancia of Eos, this rather attractive bulldog um, in ivory, which presumably came with him when he came over from Germany to marry Victoria. It's certainly of German origin with this, this bulldog. Its leg draped rather lazily at the back over the edge of the cane. At Western Park, the house in Shropshire and Staffordshire, which I'm, I'm curator and head of learning at, we have wonderful pictures of the 19th century dogs um, of the family. On the left-hand side, I show you um, Sir Francis Grant's picture of the third Earl of Bradford, the owner of the house in the 19th century, with his loyal retriever, Jet, at his feet. 
We're currently cataloguing some of the papers of the Earls of Bradford, which are in the Staffordshire Records Office. And so this portrait of his wife by Francis Grant showing a little um, King Charles Spaniel or a Blenheim Spaniel, we'd like to know a little bit more about. We'd certainly like to know the name of the dog, so we're hoping that will be revealed in due course. And of course, those dogs were shown depicted with collars on them, collars which came in all different sorts of shapes and forms from the 17th century through until the early 19th century. This is a collection of collars that Christie's in London sold last year in two lots. Some rather interesting ones amongst them. There's a collar up here of particular interest to us in the 200th anniversary of the Battle of Waterloo because that collar bears the name Colonel Hill Hardwick. And Colonel Hill became Lord Hill. He was one of the Duke of Wellington's key generals at the Battle of Waterloo. Some collars, though, are more special than others. And I'm showing you two particularly fine examples here. On the right-hand side, those of you that are observant about your heraldry will instantly recognise that that leather, silver-mounted collar belongs to the, um, the, the Duke of Devonshire. It's one of the Chatsworth dog collars, which have formed parts of several exhibitions of items from Chatsworth in the past. On the left-hand side, though, is an American-made piece. It's made by Tiffany. It's a dog collar which was um, sold by Bonhams in New York at the tail end of last year, which made something of a princely sum, which was made, in fact, for an owner, M.G. Splatt of Princetown, um, inscribed with a motto on the inside um, about the spirit of the dog um, as well. So a really wonderful piece for a much-loved pet. And, of course, tiny little models of dogs became de rigueur, thanks to a certain jeweller of Russian origin. At Polesden Lacey, Mrs. Mrs. Greville, uh, in her collection, had this rather wonderful French bulldog and a Pekingese dog made by Fabergé. Tiny little depictions of dogs, jeweled depictions of dogs, showing the love and keenness that owners had for their pets. Of course, in the royal household, when it came to Fabergé, things got bigger and better. And the two dogs that I'm showing you here are two royal examples in the Queen's collection. On the right-hand side, the rather superbly depicted bulldog, which was commissioned by George V, set with little diamond eyes. The dog on the left-hand side, though, is of, of particular interest because this was an actual depiction of Edward VII's beloved dog, Caesar. Caesar was a terrier that had been bred by the Duchess of Newcastle from Clumber, the house whose gate peers I showed you earlier in my talk this evening. And this, um, this particular dog was uh, replaced a, a beloved terrier that he had lost in turn. And he was prepared to, to spend no, go to run to any expense to, to secure the dog's future health and happiness, calling in various different surgeons when he was away travelling in Europe when the dog fell ill. Sadly, though, Edward VII predeceased the dog, and when he died in 1910, the dog walked behind his coffin ahead of nine leaders of state. <laughs> the dog is immortalised as well in St George's Chapel, Windsor, um, on his tomb, so a much-beloved dog, and indeed the collar, if you can see the, the inscription on it, it says, I belong to the king. It might equally, of course, be said that the king belonged to Caesar as well. In the 1930s, 
um, in houses up and down the country, families were still celebrating their dogs in spite of a First World War, in spite of economic uncertainty. And in this particular case, the sixth Marquis of Anglesey, whose own family had demonstrated profligacy in the previous generation, he'd been forced to sell his family's Staffordshire home at Baudesaire. He retreated to Plasnoeth, which is now owned by the National Trust, set on the Menai Straits in Wales. And in 1936, he called in the very talented young artist, Rex Whistler, to paint a spectacular mural down the dining room of um, the house. It's a wonderful seascape, which enlivens the wall, whilst the windows look out across the Menai Straits to the Welsh mountains. It's a beautiful room. The painting, though, removes the viewer from Wales. You're transported into Italy. And the details of this picture are especially poignant. When you look at the end return wall, the wall which has the chimney piece on it, and you look within the arcading there, you see, if you look very carefully, a couple of little dogs. And if we move in a little closer, we see Lady Anglesey's um, French bulldog and her pug. The French bulldog, rather alertly getting up from its cushion, wearing its pearl necklace, of course, looking across the, um, uh, to the pug and giving rather a reproachful look as the pug surveys, probably licking its lips, that dish with a bone at its centre. What happened next is not depicted. Dogs became essential icons in fashionable society of the 20th century, and the pages of Vogue become enlivened with aristocratic dog owners. In this particular case, you see the Marquis of Anglesey's sister-in-law, Lady Diana Cooper, with her bedlington. She's almost wearing the dog in the picture, a photograph by Cecil Beaton, depicting her in Paris at the time, where her husband was the British ambassador. Nancy Lancaster, of course, the Virginian who transformed the look of the English country house, her own house at Hazley Court in Oxfordshire. Within pictures of that house, which were taken at the time, are her pet favourite pet whippets. And great photographs, iconic photographs, such as this one by Norman Parkinson, which show the late Duchess of Devonshire, Deborah Mitford, in the dining room at Chatsworth. She's depicted not solely as the chatelaine of that great house, but also as the mistress of these two recumbent hounds, lying, sleeping, beloved at her feet. Dogs also form the, the, the place with people that we don't necessarily, at the first instance, associate as the chatelaine of a country house. Isabella Blow, the great uh, muse of Alexander McQueen in this picture by Elhor, um, sh uh, shows her with not the pugs, which she was particularly fond of, but two cardi um, uh, corgis um, in the grounds at Heels, her husband, Detmar Blow's house in Gloucestershire. But I think probably the final word in terms of the English love of the dog, so far as the English country house is concerned, rests with either Pharaoh or Isis, those two dogs that were all too short-lived in the affections of the Earl of Grantham at Downton Abbey, which, for all those English country house dogs, the sadness of a dog not living as long as we as humans do, and the fact that there are so many extraordinary reminders of those dogs in so many of our English country houses, says a huge amount about the way in which a dog can break through British reserve. Thank you.